Welcome back to another episode of Point of Insanity Game Studios Geekery in General Podcast. I am, of course, uh, your main host, Al, and I'd like to thank you for letting me waste a few minutes of your time today. However, I'm not alone in wasting your time because right now I've got Casey back on the show. How are you doing, Casey? Doing fine. Thanks for inviting me. You're welcome. Uh, Casey helped me a few episodes back with my episode where we talked about the dynamics of gaming groups, uh, some of the different players we've encountered over the years. Now, this will be the first episode that will air in 2015, though we are actually recording it at the end of December. Um, now, of course, the new year is almost upon us, and this is the time of the year where a lot of shows... Uh, networks will run specials, the year in review, uh, kind of look back at some of the things that have happened over the course of the year. And that's kind of the theme that we have for today's show. Today's topic is we're going to look back at how we've changed as gamers. Because now, Casey, I believe we've been through some similar experiences with having started gaming <laughs> as you know teenagers, uh, then becoming a, going to college gaming in college, and then, of course, uh, you know, gaming after college, and then, of course, both being uh, married and having kids, that, of course, <laughs> makes things a lot more different. So, mm -hmm. now, before we begin, just some uh, food for thought. I have a friend named Dan who runs a podcast called Radio Free Borderlands, and he had an episode that he called Rose Tint My World. The theme of that one was, when we look back at some of the first early campaigns we've done, you know, we look at them honestly, they really weren't that great compared to some of the things that we might do nowadays. So how would you, how do you feel about that? Do you agree that we kind of look at those with rose-tinted glasses, or would you disagree? Well, I think that what we end up doing is judging the stories from an experienced perspective when... Uh, while remembering the enthusiasm that we had for them at the time. It's sort of like uh, a movie that does something groundbreaking or interesting will be imitated again and again. And you'll find people that have never seen the original finally seeing it and finding it trite and cliched because the pieces of it that were good have been used again and again. Mm -hmm. So I think that the strengths that we find and develop in our earliest games we use again and again. And so then when we look back, we think, oh, why did I have all of this extra nonsense that I didn't need? And, oh, that part was so silly. And, oh, that part, you know, without realizing we've been refining this for sometimes decades. Well, that's certainly an interesting perspective. Um, I, I think in, it's maybe we've just had a little bit different experience as gamers because uh, some of my early campaigns – well, let's just say that they made Monty Python and the Holy Grail look mm. as serious as Lord of the Rings in comparison. We had some pretty goofy ones, and I think part of it is, well, I first started seriously regularly gaming uh, around 8th grade, uh, back in you know, middle school, about uh, 89. So during those campaigns, you know, no one was really teaching us how to play D&D uh, &D and how to run a proper campaign. We were kind of just going by, uh, you know, what we read in the books and any ideas that came to us. Um, so what about you? When you first started, were did you just run with a group of friends that were also new, or did you have, uh, like, older gamers that were also helping you? 
Well, I ran with a group of friends that was also new. Um, so I think we sort of uh, learned together what worked and what didn't and about the, the social contract in gaming itself. Um, the nice thing about having someone around who's an experienced gamer to guide you is that you get a shortcut through that kind of uh, social construct, like I said, who says what, who does what, how to, the give and take between table and GM. But then you also sometimes have a structure imposed that, you know, you could have freely constructed something new, something interesting that worked just for you. Yeah, I want to apologize. The noise in the background is one of the ways that gaming has changed for me, which is finding ways to continue to take part despite kids. So, Yes, that is something that is... Uh, I'm sure we'll get to that later. Yes, we will. So, yeah, and I mean, for my particular gaming group, again, I guess it was a little different than uh, how Wizards of the Coast wants people to get into gaming. Have you heard of the older cousin model? Um, I can kind of infer what it is just from the title. In this particular model, the ideal is that new gamers are introduced by more experienced gamers, mm -hmm. which, you know, older cousin is just kind of a, a, just a general term. It's not, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be introduced to a game by someone who is your biological older cousin, uh, just someone who's more experienced. Sure. Because uh, there was an article I read uh, that my friend Dan had posted, which uh, he talked about part of the problem that is facing role-playing games nowadays is that there aren't as many older cousins out there, uh, mm -hmm. you know, experienced game masters who are willing to run adventures for, you know, the less experienced players. And that's kind of where we were at, where we were... Again, we were young. We were just learning the rules. No one was teaching us how to run the campaign. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that is why we had some really goofy, corny campaigns back then. Like I said, they made they made Monty Python and the Holy Grail look serious by comparison. Mm -hmm. There's a couple of gamers that I know that stuck out in my mind. Um, one of them, because remember when we talked about the dynamics of a gaming group, we talked about the ego gamer. Mm -hmm. And again, this was the game master, the player who, again, they played it more to make themselves feel better, and everyone else was just kind of there. They didn't really have as much of the cooperative social aspect. A mm -hmm. uh, couple of them, uh, their names were Ed and, and Josh. Uh, they, like I said, were they were the ones who gave me the idea of the ego gamer because whenever they were being a game master and player, everything was always about their character sure um the you know if, the, if we were fighting a dragon for example the dragon uh would save its nastiest attacks for everyone else where mm -hmm. you know his character would just get like maybe a slap with the dragon's tail you know mm -hmm. the, the, the least damaging attack sure sure and again depending on who was running the game we did have a couple well one friend of mine named gene who whenever he ran the game he was the one who really tended to be you know, again, the real corny slapstick type campaigns that, well, mm -hmm. we tried to be funny, but we he tried to be funny, but he really wasn't extremely funny. Yeah, trying to reach for it. I kind of see where you're going with this. In my group, it became that the person most interested in a particular type of genre would try out a system related to that genre. Uh, the horror buff in our group ran a white wolf game. Um, the 
the Terry Pratchett buff ran a relatively lighthearted D&D, that sort of thing. Uh, there was a lot of willingness to try different systems. Yeah, and that's one thing that I didn't get, in, I didn't fall into a group where there was a lot of different systems being played until I was around uh, 15, 16 years old, because that's when I had hooked up with a gaming group in Waukesha. I'm originally from New Berlin, Waukesha is just the next city over, um, so it was kind of interesting because we had a, a wide range of players in there, and since everyone had their different system, we didn't play just mm -hmm. D&D. You know, so I got a chance to play uh, Vampire and Werewolf. I got a chance to play, was it Palladium? Mm -hmm. uh, and then since I was working on designing my own games at the time, I also had people I could play test on. <laughs> so I think that really, uh, that really uh, influenced uh, my gaming because the way that gaming group worked, we didn't really focus on long-term campaigns. It would just be short-term where someone would be like, Hey, I've got an idea for a D and D game. Okay, we'll play that for a couple months, and then, you know, two months later, we would move on to Vampire or try mm -hmm. something else. Sure. Yeah, I would say with very early game, with very early gaming for me, the emphasis was entirely on the the social aspect. the The gaming was a means to an end, not an end in itself. Mm -hmm. And then as I got into college and you know found people who for whom it was really a dedicated hobby, even part of their identity. Um, the games became more regular, the, um, the, uh, styles became more rigid, you know, it became, it became a matter of style to assert which gaming system you preferred over all others. Yeah, the older, the older I've gotten, the more specific and rigid the way that we game has gotten. Yeah, and I think as, as we get older, uh, we tend to see the... Well, I guess it depends on the group, but we probably tend to see the rules as more set in stone as opposed to being guidelines. Um, now, of course, after uh, high school, uh, I know you know both of us have gone when you know, did go to college. Mm -hmm. So, what was it like gaming in college for you? Again, finding people for whom it was their thing for the first time, um, not being thrown together as much by circumstance, but more by choice. And also having the freedom to say, you know what, I will game until 4 a.m. on Saturday. <laughs> that is that is what I choose to do because I am an adult. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah, and I mean, for me, uh, I got lucky because my roommate, freshman year in college, our interests were like 95% identical. Not just hobbies, but also taste in like music, uh, movies, TV shows. So that made it really easy because, of course, every now and then you hear horror stories about someone whose first roommate in college turns out to be their complete opposite and all they do is argue and fight with each other. Well, mm -hmm. partway through my uh, first semester, I hooked up with a martial arts group where I first started studying uh, Eskrima. Mm -hmm. And I don't remember how we got to the topic, but I found out that my instructor and uh, several of the other students also liked Eskrima. Mm -hmm. so, or I'm sorry, not a Screama. Well, some of the other kids in my Screama class also liked Dungeons and Dragons and role-playing games as well. Mm -hmm. So that just made it nice and convenient because we'd see each other for a couple times a week and then be like, okay, uh, who wants to game this weekend? Uh, Friday night, Saturday, or Sunday? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd say that time frame is really kind of a golden age of gaming because you're, you're 
you've got all of the freedom of an adult, but none of the responsibilities or, or obligations that you're going to have later on in life. Well, for the most part. We've, yeah. Both of us have been very lucky, very privileged to, you know, be able to go off to college and, and rest assured that, that we're comfortable, that our futures are set. But, um, I mean, because it would have been a lot different if I'd had to hold down two jobs while at school. So Yeah, and that, I think you make a good point there because, yeah, as you mentioned, yeah, we're adults. You know, we have, uh, you know, a good deal of freedom, but it's not like we have to worry about supporting a family and mm -hmm. keeping a roof over our heads. Exactly. I don't have, I don't have my, I, I, at the time I did not have my darling little time sucks. <laughs> <laughs> and they are. I mean, I I use a lot of morbid humor, and I think gaming actually facilitates that. But I want to make sure that the listeners know, <laughs> don't call Child Protective Services. They're happy. Yes. I'm Ka happy. Casey is a very good mother, uh, so yeah, we're not... Um... So if I speak in any way disparagingly about the experience of having two small children, it is because I have two small children. So. Yes, it's that... We'll certainly talk about those challenges uh, later on in the in, in the episode here, but you know, yeah. The my only complaint during gaming during my college years is the people I game with were mostly into D and D, mm. so we I didn't get to as much of a diverse range of games unless you count live action role playing, uh, because when I was in college, I was involved in a live action role playing group, so. Um, again, definitely different than tabletop, so I don't know if you consider that part of role-playing or something kind of I, related, I would consider it part of it. It's, it's right there in the name, role-playing. Mm -hmm. um, it's a different flavor. Um, I think a lot of people do a lot of D&D &D because it is such a flagship system, and also because within it there have been enough provisions that you can have an opinion about which version you prefer, and you can you can take a stance that way without having to choose a different system to differentiate yourself from the D&D &D people. Because you can have a 20-minute discussion about whether 2.0 is better than 3.5, and people can take a strong stance. It's easier within the subculture to identify yourself that way, as opposed to, uh, again, to take an example we've mentioned before, people who play white wolf games like vampire or werewolf. Again, even within that, you have the werewolf gamers, you have the vampire gamers, you have the changeling gamers, and then do they like the old system or the new system? Um, LARPing is just another flavor of that same how do you define yourself within the subculture. Yeah, and I plan to do an entire episode on uh on LARPing because it was something I did for a few years and it was fun. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, other than D&D, &D, the only other stuff I played, uh, when you mentioned White Wolf, that reminded me of it, uh, Street Fighter 2. <laughs> I don't know if you're aware, if you were or not, but White Wolf did actually make a Street Fighter 2 role-playing game, which was of course based on the Vampire World of Darkness series. You know, and of course there were differences, like for example, instead of like blood points, uh, you had chi, uh, that and willpower that you use to fuel your well, uh, yeah. Special Every game is going to have a mechanic. Yeah, and and instead of like having clans like vampire and werewolf, you had your style, which uh, differentiated your character from another. Mm -hmm. um, also, since I was developing Demon's Slayer with my old company, Lasalian Games, uh, during my college years, again I also uh, did play testing for that while I was in college as well. Mm -hmm. Any other final thoughts on your college years of gaming? Not really. I got to try a lot of different systems. I didn't have to worry too much about where I was going to be except for making sure I did well in school. And I think it helped 
solidify that this was something I would continue doing. Yeah, same again, same here as you mentioned. It was kind of that golden age for the reason that mm-hmm. you know you you're an adult, but you don't have as many responsibilities as an adult usually does. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, uh, college unfortunately only lasts for so many years, and we're thrust into the real world. Mm-hmm. Um, so. After college, what was gaming like for you, or how did it change after you got out of college? After I left college, gaming became a way to keep in connection with older friends and also a means to meet new people. Um, Actually, you mentioned that you LARPed earlier. Uh, Zach and I were both part of a uh, long-running vampire game based in Oshkosh. It ran for, I think, 12 years. had something like 50 different players at its peak, huge game, a lot of fun, and we actually met through the game. Um, So there is this safety net of gaming in that even the people I didn't know, I knew who their friends were. You could sort of uh, know which people you would get along with before you ever sat down with them. Mm -hmm. And because of that, it became easier to uh, make those connections. It's a fa- it's a fantastic tool for social networking if you're willing to just say, all right, I'm a gamer and go for it. Yeah, and that's a good point. Again, after you get out of college, if you're lucky enough to live in the same general area where your friends from college are, uh, you know, you can still keep in contact with them. Um, now, of course, for me, uh, my my biggest problem is after I got out of college, uh, when I met uh, my wife, well, she played some vampire, and she wasn't really a big gamer, though. Mm-hmm. Um, she would play Dungeons & Dragons, and you know she would play the occasional game of Demon Slayer when, we were, when mm-hmm. I was with Lasalian Games. Um, but she never really took the gaming very seriously. Mm-hmm. I don't remember if I mentioned this before on the Dynamics of a Gaming Group episode, but my wife was the kind of person who specialized in playing annoying characters. So she wouldn't intentionally try to disrupt the campaign or the game session, but sometimes she would be a little disruptive just because of, well, like I said, she liked playing annoying characters that tended to draw things off in different directions. Right. But other than the people I was with in my company, uh, when I made friends with some people up in Green Bay, um, I also found out that they also liked Dungeons and Dragons as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, we would do the occasional game of D&D with them, uh, where mostly second edition, mm-hmm. uh, but eventually we did move on to doing a little bit of the, the 3.0, 3.5. Mm-hmm. Well, I will say, as a segue into being married, because you mentioned your wife, um, there is always that balance between people who are very serious about gaming and not serious about gaming, whether they identify as a gamer or gaming is simply something that is part of what they do. And um, I think that it's very similar to a person who marries a hardcore sports fan. You may never understand what they get out of football. You may not appreciate in the least you know, their collection of jerseys and memorabilia and all of that. And I find that if we if we think of it in the same way, try to try to do that analogy of this person doesn't understand the hobby as opposed to this person just doesn't get it. Um, it can help make it feel more comprehensible. I'm lucky in that Zach and I have to keep gaming at sort of the same priority, but um, I know that it can be hard for somebody who really identifies as a gamer um, to 
be involved with somebody who doesn't see the appeal in the same way that if Zach were a hardcore football fan, I would really not have a way to interact with him in relating to football at all. So it, that can be hard. It's a legitimate thing. I have spoken to a lot of people who've had a fair bit of heartache about it because if you don't really get the importance that it can have to a person because of the stories that they've told and the choices that they've made within games and the ways that gaming have helped an individual person grow, it can be hard to have somebody devalue that. That's a good point. I don't know. In any conversation of marriage and gaming, I think that needs to be brought up because everybody has met the bitter gamer who strongly identifies as a gamer and married somebody who doesn't understand. Yeah, and when you bring up the sports analogy, I can certainly understand that because my wife and her family, they were into football. <laughs> and I never really watched football when I was a kid. Uh, see, when I was a child, my dad was really into auto racing mm -hmm. and any sport outside of auto racing he didn't really care for. Uh, like whenever the news would come on and they'd talk about the Milwaukee Bucks or the Milwaukee mm -hmm. Brewers or the Green Bay Packers, he'd be like, Balls and sticks, bunch of overpaid prima donnas chasing around a ball, playing a stupid kid game, balls and sticks. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's what I went through in my childhood Sure. <laughs> whenever uh, sports came up on the news. Mm -hmm. um, so I said I wasn't against sports, I just never really got into it. Well, that does make sense because sports, whether it's an experience that you have with your family or friends as a spectator or something that you do when you are young, can be a formative experience. Yeah. Um, and then after getting married, then eventually they did win me. You know, I did start getting uh, <laughs> interested in football, uh, became a Chicago Bears fan, which, you know, it's I, I take heat about it occasionally, of course, being in Wisconsin and being so close to Green Bay. Mm -hmm. um, Occasionally, if someone sees me wearing like a, a Bears shirt uh, in public, you know, occasionally I get someone being like, wow, you're brave to be wearing that shirt around here. Mm -hmm. So, no, contrary to popular belief, there are not ro roving gangs of uh, Packer fans who uh, seek to find uh, Bears fans, tie them up to trees and humiliate them, at least none that I've encountered. Of course not. We would never say that out loud where people could record us, and they would certainly not be standing about 10 feet away with sticks with nails in them. Of course. So, anyways. Never. So, yeah, and that's one of the things that I think uh, getting married was certainly a challenge when, as I said, because my wife wasn't um, as serious about gaming as I was. Let's move on to the final phase of the this particular topic and discussion here, and well, you know what they say, first comes love, then comes marriage, then comes the little money pits. I mean, the children, the joyful, wonderful children that make our lives worth living. Gaming is a fantastic tool for parenting. Mm -hmm. Anything that encourages creative thought in parent or child is good. And I have to say it has prepared me for the endless tell me a story no not that no tell me a story about christmas and spider-man <laughs> spider uh, spider-man christmas special yeah just come up with something now do it now entertain the kid endlessly endlessly it never ends but i've had practice and you know what coming up with ways to explain and ways to think around a small person who doesn't really know the rules yet is very similar to trying to outthink a table that has uh trying to work an angle it's um it's been very useful and i also find that a willingness to game does mean that um i'm more willing to include the kids at least for me yeah. um to find ways to do things together 
<laughs> so the little one has something to say, add to the podcast here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. But, you know, yeah, that is a, a good point. I mean, it is, I mean, right now my son, I tried bringing him to a game session once. He didn't really get into it. Um, you know, I, I'll certainly try again in a few years because right now he's more into video games and the role-playing games. Mm-hmm. But I have met people who do have kids and they do still manage to game and get their children into gaming. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing that is kind of nice about the variety of role-playing game products out there, there are companies that do make games that are specifically aimed towards introducing kids into role-playing. Which is actually a good thing to bring up because for people who do try to get their kids involved, whether it's video games or tabletop gaming or any kind of interactivity, um, one of the trickiest things to keep in mind is, and I'm not trying to talk about content here, uh, but age appropriateness. Um, For example, a story that you would tell a 20-year-old with no problem or a 40-year-old with no problem. a 10-year-old might not grasp either some of the uh, things that you're trying to say on subtext. A 5-year-old might not understand that the person in authority would lie. Yeah, exactly. And um, I think one game that I actually picked up recently on eBay, which I will have to introduce you to sometime, uh, Dream Park. Um, I talked a little bit about that with Steve. I think that's... I read the novel this is based on. Yeah, it's actually a good role-playing game, I think, to introduce kids to uh, because one of the things that can be hard for even adult players, well, maybe not adult, but like young, like teenage players. We've got to pause a minute. This is awesome. I love that novel. <laughs> well, I'll tell you all about the game when we're... <laughs> okay, take here. this book away from me because we need to finish the podcast. Okay, Thank you. Yes. Um, <laughs> but uh, like one of the things that's nice about Dream Park is your char- you're basically a character playing a character, so your characters can't don't don't really die, mm-hmm. um, which I think makes it ideal to for younger kids because you know even some of the younger people I've gamed with, if a character dies, they do take it kind of hard. Um, and yeah. of course, you know once you get older, then you start to realize okay, it's just a bunch of stuff on a piece of paper, so it's mm-hmm. no big deal. But I mean, yeah, it definitely does. I, I think you did make some good points that role playing, you know, learning to be a role player anyway can have some benefit for you know, parent, especially if you're trying to tell a story on the fly to a, a child about, you know, Spider-Man save Santa or something mm-hmm. <laughs> like well, that. And also thinking about different possible motivations. Um, having having run a game for so long, um, it's easier for me to try and take a step back and I, I don't want to say disassociate or detach, but say, okay, Apart from the situation, what are the people here trying to do? Um, because when I'm playing a table full of people who are trying to accomplish something, they haven't necessarily told me their intent. Yeah. You know, they haven't told me the goal behind it unless I have explicitly asked. So I think it makes me more willing to give the benefit of the doubt. Casey, I'd certainly like to thank you for offering your opinion for uh, – I should have mentioned this earlier, but this would actually be kind of a two parts in one episode uh, because – uh, I'm going to be actually contacting my normal co-host Steve. Uh, he is back on uh, homely, you know, homely for a little bit, so he's actually had a bit of a different experience than us as far as how he's changed as a gamer. You know, because of course after high school he went into the Navy, mm-hmm. and being in the military has its own set of challenges for a role player. Oh sure. Um, you know, so yeah, well, I'm sure sure Steve will be able to offer some interesting uh, perspectives because. I guess if I had to sum it up, for me, the thing I found is being a gamer as a married adult with kids, 
I try to focus a little more on quality over quantity nowadays, where I don't play as much. I'll just play one game, but I try to make it, I try to get the most out of that. What about you? I think that's also true. You have to prioritize when and what you game and whom you game with. Uh, it becomes something that you have to choose more carefully. So that'll end the first part of this episode. And uh, So Casey, thanks for joining me and offering your insights here. And for the next part, we'll be talking with my normal co-host Steve as he explains some of his experiences being a gamer in the military. Well, uh, thank you again for inviting me. I hope it was useful. Welcome and thanks for joining me. Mm-hmm. Bye. Welcome to the second half of this very special episode. First half, Casey and I talked a little bit about our experiences as gamers when uh, we went from being high school students to college students to adults and then finally to being parents and how uh, gaming has changed for us over uh, the years. Now, I've got my regular co-host with me, Steve. And uh, we are recording this on December 26th, so a belated Merry Christmas. Happy Holidays to you. Yeah, belated Mele Kalikimaka. Yep, which, as I recall, is a, you know, there's that whole song. It's not Merry Christmas necessarily. It's just kind of a general uh, Happy Holidays. Something along those lines. Yep, so it sounds like you picked up a little bit of uh, the local language down there in uh, Hawaii, right? <laughs> Should, after almost 20 years now. Yeah. <laughs> So, let's go back to 1989. Uh, that's when we were in middle school, and I believe that's when we first started re- really gaming regularly. So, Steve, what are some of your memories of us gaming back in the late 80s? Well, I would have to say our, our biggest thing was mainly ha- trying to find time that we can get together you know, almost for like sleepover type deals, just so we can even attempt to try and play yeah. and trying to pick up with, you know, several other friends. Yeah, I remember those days. It was it was always fun when we could do the, the sleepovers because, yeah, we could stay up to like, you know, midnight or one in the morning gaming. And, you know, of course, we didn't have to go to school the next day. So good times, lots of fun. Um, what are some of the things you remember about the nature of the campaigns that we had? And uh, this is what I, I mean by that. Uh, as I mentioned in the first part, uh, we have, Steve and I have a friend named Dan who runs a podcast called Radio Free Borderlands. He had an episode called Rose Tint My World. And his premise behind this episode was that when we look at some of our first earliest campaigns, we tend to look at them through rose colored glasses. Yeah, they were fun for back in the day, but if we look at it as we do now, you know, as adults, those campaigns really weren't all that great. Would you agree or disagree with that statement? I would have to agree with you. Because back then, you know, we were all, you know, kids, basically, and we were just going with what made it fun. Yeah, and we, no one really taught us how to run a game of D&D, because back in those days, we that time in our life we really didn't have uh someone who you know taught us the ropes on running a campaign i said it was all trial and error for us and i'm gonna review a little bit of what i we did in in the first part when i was speaking with casey but there were a couple of uh, friends we gamed with that i mentioned um ed and josh 
And now, what was your opinion when you we gained with them? Because um, as I mentioned in the first part, they tend to be very egotistical when they were running their games, where if they were being both the player and the game master, everything was about their character and everyone else. Yeah, you're just kind of my supporting cast along for the ride. Yeah, I would have to say I've seen that, especially with Ed. I just know he he was the biggest one that did that type of deal. Yeah, and and to some extent, I think it is a trait when you are younger, and because of course you know you when you're learning about this game, where hey, I can play a mighty warrior or a mysterious wizard or a sneaky thief. Yeah, naturally you want your character to be pretty kick-ass. Uh, it's just that I, I think sometimes it takes us a little longer to really get into the cooperative aspect of, of role-playing, um, where, you know, you do learn the joy of coordinating your teammates and, you know, working together as a party. Yep, using the strengths and weaknesses of the other characters. Yeah, and... Now, one of the things I do remember from back in the day when we were gaming uh, as high school, middle school students, uh, most of the people in our gaming group had a specific character class or character archetype that we kind of latched onto and we always liked to play. Now, in your case, it was the thief. Or the rogue, depending on how you want to look at it. Yeah, and that applied to more than just uh, D&D, because as I recall, whenever we did try a new game system, which wasn't very often, uh, if there was a thief class in the the game, you know, you would tend to gravitate towards the closest to a thief. Um, or you would try to, if it was like a skill-based system, you would build your character like a thief. So what are the, some of the things you liked about playing thieves, or what was the attraction to that class for you? I can't really say nowadays, because it's been a while. Apparently, when, you know, we get got the first few editions of D&D Serene it. I just somewhat liked how, what the thief did and I just stuck with it. Yeah, and I haven't played too many thieves, but they can certainly be interesting to play because they're, they're, they're they can be pretty good fill-in characters for the party. They usually have good dexterity, so they can be excellent archers, uh, you know, back row fighters, but they have you know, decent weapon use ability, so they can also become uh, decent fighters, and of course not as good as like a fighter, a ranger, or paladin. Um, and then one of the things that can be kind of fun about playing the thief is the thieving abilities you get. You know, being able to sneak around, climb walls, hide, spy on your enemies. So, I mean, I think it can be a lot Detect of fun. traps, open locks. Yeah, so if you're the kind of person who likes being very useful to the party, a thief can be very handy, very uh, fun class to play. And now for me back in those days, I always liked playing uh, warriors, specifically the ranger. And I think for me it was because I liked the whole fighting with two weapons and, uh, you know, of course, being in Boy Scouts way back then. Um, you know, I loved camping. I loved hiking. Um, I love You had a little flair for nature. Yep, I enjoyed being in nature. So I think that's one of the other things. And uh, another thing that attracted me to the ranger is, they can, they've got a pretty good diverse range of skills. They can put on plate mail and wield a two-handed sword if they want, but they can also put on light armor and sneak around. 
And of course, at higher levels, they also gain the ability to use magic. So I guess that's one of the things I liked about Rangers, their diversity uh, and how they can really be useful party members in that regards. But of course, those days of gaming in high school can't last forever. And this is where um, our, our life paths kind of, where they pretty much radically diverged. Uh, as I mentioned, I went into college. Uh, Steve, though, you had a different path you took. Uh, yeah, I joined the military and went through the Navy. Yeah, so why don't you tell us a little bit about your experiences being a gamer in the military? Well, after uh, boot camp, I went to my first school, which was in San Diego. You know, this is after years of playing with uh, you guys, uh, role-playing type of deal. Then basically going around going, I have no idea who anyone is around here. I am basically by myself. But I eventually did come across a, a small group that did role, tabletop role-playing. I just happened to uh, meet up with one of the members of that group, started talking to them, started finding out, you know, our likes and dislikes. He invited me to their group session that they played. I'm like, yeah, okay, sure, uh, I'll, I'll join in. You know, gave me something to do while I was there. And, of course, uh, with that group, they didn't stick with one system. It was like one day we played, you know, Vampire. Next day we played Werewolf. Next day Wraith. Next day Star Wars, you know. We, we just played a different game system, you know, each day of the week. And, of course, each person was the game master. So you had, like, a rotating game master, uh, so to speak, where, you know, one person might say, hey, I want to run a D&D game. And then maybe the next month someone might be like, hey, I'd like to run Star Wars or, or Shadowrun. Um, so yeah, th things like that, yeah. But also had a problem of is... Our, our group was always a little bit different each time because we also had other responsibilities we had to deal with oh, yeah. during times that we had our game session. So not everyone in the group could be there all the time. Yeah. And I mean, that's something that can certainly happen in, uh, you know, any gaming group because sometimes someone can't get off of work or, uh, you know, maybe they got like a school concert or school play. So they can't make it, but, uh, you know, once you get to, you know, where you were in the military, yeah, there, uh, you bring up a good point. There's other things you have to consider, like someone might be, okay, I'm going to be on deployment for the next couple months. And then, you know, unfortunately, then you're not going to be able to game with him for that time. And uh, I believe you mentioned before that, you know, sometimes you would have rotating schedules for uh, depending on what duty you had. Correct. And one of the things you did mention is that this group gave you the experience to play other different games. And I had that experience when I went to my group in Waukesha uh, because we had a more diverse group with people who had these different games that we could play. So we didn't just have to do D&D. &D. And it sounds like you had a similar experience over there where, uh, you, again, you got exposed to games that you may not have otherwise had a chance to play. Correct. So any specific campaigns or game sessions from San Diego uh, that uh, stick out in your mind? Well, 
It depending on the uh, situation, because uh, one of the things that got me into the thing, you know, the saying, opening the door, was my interest in the anime Ranma One Half. And uh, since I had recorded, you know, um, one of our discussions on a previous uh, podcast here, how we uh, would download or record music from videos type of deal. Well, I had one such disc and I was playing it and he listened to it or he heard it. That's what got us talking. So needless to say, a lot of my characters had a little Ranma one half appeal to them. Mm -hmm. So like based off of characters from that anime series or? Somewhat. Basically the ones that were big into that was uh werewolf and uh star wars because yeah, werewolf i didn't have to play a wolf i actually played a panda a <laughs> were panda oh yeah i i believe you told me about that particular campaign um which it, for anyone who's not aware of ranma one half it's a martial arts anime series but you know it's, it's comedy um so it's not uh, it's not really very serious, but uh, one of there's several characters in this series that have been to some place called the uh, Training Grounds of Jusankyo or the, the Cursed Wells of Jusankyo, uh, where there's these these poles sticking out of these little pools, and if you fall into one of those pools, well, let's go back a little bit. Um, the main character Ranma and his father were there practicing and. You know, they were jumping from pole to pole, attacking each other, and... Um, now, was it Ranma that took the first plunge, or Genma? Genma. Okay, yeah, his father Genma, he... Uh, Ranma knocked his father into a pool, and when he came out, he was a huge panda. Uh, Which uh, shocked him, and caused him to uh, not defend himself when his dad came and hit him. Yep, and unfortunately, he got knocked into the spring of drowned girl. Because the curse of Jusankyo is that when you get knocked into one of these these pools, when you come out, whenever you're you know you you're been transformed into whatever died in that pool. Like there's another character that fell into the the, the pool of drowned piglet. There's another one who fell into the pool of drowned cat, uh, and there's other people have, that have you know have even more bizarre curses. Um, and the only way to change back is to get hit with hot water. Um, but once you get hit with cold water, then you revert back to your normal form. Um, but yeah, Steve and I did actually previously record an episode on anime, but I haven't had a chance to uh, edit that one and put it together so I could put it up. But that's that's on my, my list of things to do. Um, so moving on, and I believe after, uh, after you were done with your school in uh, San Diego, you moved to the other side of the country, to Connecticut. Yep. And, of course, just like everything, backed up, left everyone, and now I'm back to square one again going, I have no idea who anyone is here. I have no idea what their likes, dislikes. The only people I really know here is the few people that followed me from San Diego or the few people that I knew at boot camp that was still there. Otherwise, I was, you know, back to square one. Yeah, and that can certainly be daunting for anyone when you move to a you know a new city, especially when you're going to one that's on the other side of the country. Um, you know, so yeah, you said you had to basically start over. So, how did things go in, in Connecticut? 
Oh, basically, I uh, I really didn't get to gaming until one night. I was doing walking around and saw a small group of people role playing. And I just happened to come up to them, see what they were doing, started talking with them, and realized that they were playing vampire. And I told them, well, I, I had a little bit of experience with vampire. Still had my character sheet from when I was uh, in uh, San Diego. And so they let me join in. Of course, that was only for like a couple times because then I left uh, Connecticut for Hawaii after that. Yeah, and I basically think- it was only like a couple days of playing because typical military thing. Not everyone could get together. Yeah, and um, I, another challenge that I know you we've talked about before uh, that you faced is, you know, of course, part of the nature of being in the military. Uh, you know, sometimes, you know, people, they do get moved to other bases or sometimes you have people who, uh, you know, their, their term, their, uh, term of service is over. So they leave, uh, there. Okay. So after Connecticut, uh, you moved over to Hawaii. Uh, tell us about how things changed for you when you went to Hawaii. Well, like usual deal, got to Hawaii and didn't know anyone. So I didn't know if anyone, played or not it wasn't until I finally got to the command I was supposed to be at and started, you know, hanging out with a couple of the guys there that I found out that some of them gained. So I started talking to them and they're like, yeah, sure. You could join us. So after, uh, we got in port, you know, we had set up a day for everyone to get together. One of the uh, guys' house so we all went over and, of course, started introducing me to all the other guys that weren't attached to the command that would join us. That's also the first uh, experience I had dealing with female gamers because they were mostly the wives of the guys. Yeah, and so, yeah, I know that's always uh, interesting to fir- when you're, uh, you know, because when we were growing up, uh, you know, we were not used to this idea of female gamers. Um, you know, back then, there just weren't many women that were interested in D&D, probably just thought of it as being too geeky, which, of course, that's not the, the case nowadays, where it's not unusual to see female gamers at a table. Um, I mean, I've got uh, actually two female gamers in my, my current group. Um, so... Have you, was there anything different you noticed when you did have a, a female gamer at the table? I mean, did they, did you notice that they have a different playing style from the guys? Well, other than that, they always played a female character, but it came in handy when uh, they had that female perspective. Otherwise, from what they, from what I saw, they, they just played like the guys. They picked their class that they liked and they went with it yeah and that's uh, when casey and i discussed the dynamics of the gaming group uh we did touch briefly on gender and how female gamers and male gamers do differ and i know one of my plans for the future i would like to do a show entire you know just about uh female gamers and you know maybe get casey and uh, a couple of my other friends who are female gamers uh, on the show so they can you know they can give us a more perspective on, you know, okay, with females, how it's different, how they become introduced to D&D or role-playing games and 
how they view role playing is different from you know from from guys like us do. Fast forward a little bit, so you get to Hawaii, you get settled in, and finally find some people to hook up with. What types of games have you played down there? Have you stuck with most of the you know your old standby like Dungeons and Dragons, or have there been any new groups? Or I'm sorry, not new groups. Uh, any new games that you've been exposed to? Well, needless to say, once uh, I, I left the command or everyone in the group left, my uh, ability to really game basically went back to square one again. It's like I, I come across a few that do role play, but it's really not enough to really sit down for a get together. Because it would only be uh, me and one other person. But by that time, uh, going to like comic book stores and stuff, started uh, seeing some of the other game systems that are out nowadays. You know, getting used to the revamp of Star Wars, you know, Rifts, and seeing the uh, Big Eye Small Mouth series. When they tried to do stuff where the theme of certain anime series, and of course Robotech, and then the latest ones I, I've been uh, coming across, uh, Firefly slash Serenity RPG, mm-hmm. uh, Stargate SG One, and uh, Dragon Age. Now, what would you say is the biggest change you've gone through? Uh, from being Steve the Gamer in high school and middle school to being Steve the Gamer in the military? I'd have to say the, the more seriousness in the in the uh, plots of the games we play. Yeah, because back when we were younger, we played like we were just joking around type of deal. Oh, yeah. I, as I mentioned in the first part of the show, uh, we had some campaigns back then that would make Monty Pythons and the Holy Grail seem serious by comparison. Um, so yeah, we definitely had some corny ones back then. Yep. So do you think that uh, the whole getting serious doesn't have to do with being just older, or do you think you're just being a more experienced gamer? I have to say it's a little bit of both. Maturity and knowing, you know... How to play to make a more serious type of uh, reality? Yeah, and I, I can certainly under, I I agree with you. I, I certainly understand what you're saying there. How um, you know when we get a little bit better grasp on the rules, and then you know we finally realize that there are different ways you can do a campaign. Because um, back when we were doing it, you know everything had to be all overly dramatic and. Uh, you know, knee slapping, yuck yucks, you know, slapstick comedy. But you know, we found out, okay, there's other ways you can do campaigns. You can do campaigns that deal with more uh, dark themes, or more uh, mature themes, or even more sinister themes, if you want. Well, this is going to wrap up our uh, episode. Again, this is a little different than uh, the other episodes I've done so far uh, because I've had you know two different recording sessions with uh, two different people. So. Uh, thank you, Steve, for providing your perspective. Uh, as I said, since you know you are in the military, you have had a different set of challenges uh, when being a gamer. So, Steve, um, if there's any 
uh, anyone listening to this uh, podcast right now who uh, is a gamer and is also in the military, what suggestions or uh, thoughts would you like to give to uh, any military gamers that might hear this? Well, stick with uh, the people you're with. You know, make sure uh, you keep in contact with them because with some of us military, we leave and it's like you don't hear from that person, you know, for a long time because uh, I've recently gotten reacquainted with, you know, a couple of the game masters I had from that group just recently. I just happened to come across to find their uh, Facebook account. Yeah, and one thing that uh, I probably should have mentioned this before, but uh, one helpful software program, I've heard of it. I've never used it, though. Uh, Screen Monkey, which, and I'm sure there's other software programs that are designed to do this as well, but there are now virtual programs you can use to create a virtual tabletop that you could use for uh, for role-playing. And I suppose you can even do it over a chat program um, if you you know, wanted to as well. So, hey, where there's technology, we gamers will find a way to use it, right? Well, that is uh, all the time we have for this particular episode. Uh, so once again, uh, I'd like to thank you, Steve, for uh, your insights and for uh, joining me on this, for the second part of this episode. So from uh, both of us, uh, happy belated holidays or Christmas or whatever you celebrate this time of year. We hope it was happy, hope it was good. So uh, have a good evening, morning, afternoon, whatever it is, wherever you are in. Happy games.